0: This is Fred Jeff Smith, pastor of Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church, inviting you to give consideration to our Early Learning Academy as you look for a place for your pre-K, kindergarten, or first grader. We would love to have the opportunity to serve your child. We have outstanding facilities and a wonderful staff of certified teachers itching to serve you. Come by and share with us as soon as you can. Stories in the Bible true? I need answers. Welcome to a closer look with the Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church. I'm Fred Jeff Smith, Pastor of Shiloh, and I'm very happy that you chose to spend the next hour with us as we delve into the study of God's Word. We can't do what we don't know. Here at Shiloh, we want to spend time studying the Word so that we can rightly apply the Word to our daily living and make a difference in our community and in our world for Jesus Christ. Won't you join us now for a closer look into God? When you get your notes, you know, typically I, I put the passage at the head and then break it down. And I didn't do any of that this time. I want us to look at Judges chapters 19, 20, and 21. Uh, it is one story and I need to tell you It is a complex, convoluted, and ugly story. I don't know if you, some some people like to read ahead of time. It's an ugly story. It's a very ugly story. But it's a story that I do think we can glean some things from. And so we're going to try to do that. Some Bible scholars see Judges 19 through 21 as a second concluding story to Judges, the first one being Judges 17 and 18, that later editors, as you all know, or you should know by now, uh, the Bible was not originally in a written format. It was oral tradition. There were stories that were passed on from one to another, and at some point, people decided that these stories needed to be written down and compiled into books. Uh, chapters 19 through 21 are seen as uh, a late addition to the book that brings a, what, what amounts to a second conclusion to the judge's story. Again, the first conclusion is verse is chapters 17 and 18. And there are similarities, and we'll try to make that point at the end. Hopefully I'll have enough time to do that. We'll try to make some, some, some points at the end about the, the commonality between uh, chapters 17 and 18 and what we find in chapters 20, 19, 20, and 21. But there is little hope of drawing a line of coherence From this story, Uh, uh, it's it. Well, I guess the simplest thing to do would be to just get into it. Look at Judges chapter nineteen, and let's look at the first nine verses. It was an era when there was no king in Israel. A Levite living as a stranger in the backwoods hill country of Ephraim got himself a concubine, a woman from Bethlehem in Judah. But she quarreled with him and left, returning to her father's house in Bethlehem in Judah. She was there four months. Then her husband decided to go after her and try to win her back. He had a servant and a pair of donkeys with him. When he arrived at her father's house, the girl's father saw him, welcomed him, and made him feel at home. His father-in-law, the girl's father, pressed him to stay. He stayed with him three days. They feasted and drank and slept. On the fourth day, they got up at the crack of dawn and got ready to go. But the girl's father said to his son-in-law, strengthen yourself with a hearty breakfast and then you can go. So they sat down and ate breakfast together. The girl's father said to the man, come now, be my guest, stay the night, make it a holiday. The man got up to go, but his father-in-law kept after him. So he ended up spending another night. On the fifth day, he was again up early, ready to go. The girl's father said, you need some breakfast. They went back and forth, and the day slipped on as they ate and drank together. But the man and his concubine were finally ready to go. Then his father-in-law, the girl's father, said, look, the day's almost gone. Why not stay the night? There's very little daylight left. Stay another night and enjoy yourself. Tomorrow, you can get an early start and set off for your own place. But this time the man wasn't willing to spend another night. He got things ready, left, and went as far as Jabez, which is Jerusalem, with his pair of saddled donkeys, his concubine, and his servant. At Jabus, though the day was nearly gone, the servant said to his master, it's late, let's go into this Jebusite city and spend the night. I went a little farther than I wanted to go. But, What we see in the first part of this, and this is the beginning of the story that doesn't end until we get to chapter 21, is that a Levite from rural Ephraim collects a concubine from Bethlehem, which is outside the city of Jerusalem. So keeping it in terms of what you might understand Ephraim would have been in the northern country, would have been in the province that we know as Israel. In New Testament terms, it would have been up in the Galilee area. Okay, and Bethlehem was in the southern part, what we would commonly know as Judah. So it's a it's a good bit of distance between those two places. He goes from Ephraim to Bethlehem to collect a concubine. What is a concubine? I'm glad you asked. We've said this to you before, but but for those who, who might not remember, for those who might not have been here, a concubine was a woman lawfully united in marriage to a man, but in a relationship that was inferior to a regular wife. There was no moral stigma attached to being a concubine, it was considered to be a natural part of a polygamous social system. That's the way their culture was, that's the way their system was set up. Concubines commonly were taken from foreign slave girls who had become the slaves of the Hebrews, either taken in war or people who had attached themselves through indentured servitude to Hebrews. That was commonly where they came from. But free Hebrew women might also become concubines, and that seems to be the case here. It does not say that this woman was not Jewish, that she was not uh, uh, of Hebrew descent. So we're led to believe that she was. Concubines had no rights except lawful cohabitation. They had no authority with regard to the family. They had no authority with regard to household affairs. Those were left to the first wife, whoever the first wife was. Their husbands could send them away with a small present And whatever children were produced from the union could also be excluded from the inheritance if the father chose to give them a gift as opposed to making them full heirs. The children of a concubine were considered to be legal, but the children of the first wife were always considered to be preferred in the distribution of the inheritance. I'm just trying to paint you a picture of what a concubine is. The relationship, as we see, was rocky from the start. He goes to get her, but they fight. That's what the scripture says. They argue. And after a four-month separation, he decides, to go back and get her. Understand now, he had gone to get her, he had taken her back to Ephraim. They fight while they're in Ephraim, and she decides, I'm going back to my daddy's house. So she had to make the trip from Ephraim back down to Bethlehem by herself. And they were separated for four months. And then the Levite decides he's going to go back. He's going to get her and he's going to reconcile with her. When he goes to get her, the girl's father entreats him to stay for several days. You ever been to somebody's house and they keep telling you, just stay. You ain't got to go. Just stay. Every day he gets up ready to leave. Y'all say no. (laughs) I'm I'm looking at y'all shaking your head. No. Every day he gets up ready to leave, every day the father entreats him to stay another day until finally he decides it's time for him to leave. And he insists on leaving. The Levite, the concubine, and the Levite's servant set out at some point around midday, and they travel as far as, as they can. They make it to a town called Gibeah before the sun goes down. There, they intend to sleep in the town square. But they are approached by a man who offers his hospitality. Look at verses 15 through 21. So they kept going. As they pressed on, the sun finally left them in the vicinity of Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. They left the road there to spend the night at Gibeah. The Levite went and sat down in the town square, but no one invited them in to spend the night. Then, late in the evening, an old man came in from his day's work in the fields. He was from the hill country of Ephraim and lived temporarily in Gibeah, where all the local citizens were Benjaminites. When the old man looked up and saw the traveler in the town square, he said, where are you going and where are you from? The Levite said, we're just passing through. We're coming from Bethlehem on our way to a remote spot in the hills of Ephraim. I come from there. I've just made a trip to Bethlehem in Judah, and I'm on my way back home. But no one has invited us in for the night. We wouldn't be any trouble. We have food and straw for the donkeys and bread and wine for the woman, the young man, and me. We don't need anything. The old man said, it's going to be all right. I'll take care of you. You aren't going to spend the night in the town square. He took them home and fed the donkeys. They washed up, and sat down to a good meal. All right, we've, we, we've covered this before, especially when we were talking about uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Uh, hospitality was a very important part of Palestinian culture at that time. To extend hospitality to someone or to a group was more than just saying, If you need a room for the night, come on in and stay with me. It was more than just saying we've got some food here for you. When you brought someone into your home, you were bringing them under your protection. For as long as they're in town and they're abiding in your house, when you say come on in, that means that you are protecting them from all of the outside forces that may exist within that community. That was all a part of the hospitality. I, I know when we use hospitality, we mean one thing. But, it, but you need to understand what hospitality means in this culture. By inviting this man and his group into his home, he was assuming responsibility for his welfare. You with me? Y'all got to stay on task with this. Because something else is about to happen. Verse 22. They were relaxed and enjoying themselves when the men of the city, a gang of local hellraisers all, surrounded the house and started pounding on the door. They yelled for the owner of the house, the old man, bring out my Bible. Bring out the man who came to your house. We want to have sex with him. He went out and told them, No, brothers, don't be obscene. This man is my guest. Understand the hospitality? Don't commit this outrage. Look, my virgin daughter and his concubine are here. I'll bring them out for you. Abuse them If you must, but don't do anything so senselessly vile to this man. But the men wouldn't listen to him. Finally, the Levite pushed his concubine out the door to them. They raped her repeatedly all night long. Just before dawn, They let her go. The woman came back and fell at the door of the house where her master was sleeping. When the sun rose, there she was. It was morning. Her master got up and opened the door to continue his journey. There she was, his concubine, crumpled in a heap at the door, her hands on the threshold. Get up, he said. Let's get going. There was no answer. He lifted her onto his donkey and set out for home. When he got home, he took a knife and dismembered his concubine, cut her into 12 pieces. He sent her piece by piece throughout the country of Israel. And he ordered the men he sent out, say to every man in Israel, has such a thing as this ever happened from the time the Israelites came up from the land of Egypt until now? Think about it. Talk it over. Do something. The hoodlums insisted that They have this man. And the owner of the house said, No, you can't have the man. That would be wrong. He's under my protection. But I got a daughter, and he has a concubine, and we can send them out to you, and you can do with them whatever. You won't, but leave him alone. The hoodlums say, no, they keep pounding at the door. No, we want what we want. And finally, the Levite. The Levite. Y'all know who Levites are? Mediators between God and man, divinely appointed. The Levite. Pushes his concubine out the door and leaves her for them to do whatever they wanted to do. A couple of things about this that are disturbing. It's interesting that the protection of the Levite did not extend to the concubine or to the virgin daughter. Let's start with the, with the owner of the house before we get to the Levite. The owner of the house says, I ain't going to send the man out to y'all. Y'all, y'all ain't going to mess with the man, but I got a virgin daughter and he has a concubine and you can have them and do what you want. Hospitality. Protection. All that come under his roof are under his protection. Clearly, the protection that he saw as being so valuable to extend to the Levite, he did not see it as being valuable to extend to the concubine or even to his own daughter. It is another indication. And we've had several throughout Judges. Here's another indication of the disparagement of women in this culture. Women simply don't matter. He allows them to take his concubine, now, now moving from the owner to the Levite. They kept pounding on the door and the Levite just decides, I'm going to send out the concubine. I want you to think about something. He traveled from Ephraim to Bethlehem to get the concubine and take her back home. Then she decides we ain't going to make it. And she leaves and goes back down to Bethlehem. He comes back down a second time to collect her and they're on their way back north to Ephraim when this happens you would think if you're making two trips look at it on a map if you're making two trips from where he was to where he picked her up you would think that she would have a certain degree of value to him you would think that after she left He didn't say goodbye and good riddance. He decided he was going to go back and get her. But when it became a choice between himself and her, all of a sudden, the value that she had, she no longer had. It's a reminder that our value with people, our value with people is situational at best. What do I mean by that? I mean folk love you as long as they can get something from you. Folk love you as, as long as they feel like they can derive something from the relationship. The moment that changes, You become disposable. This woman was so valuable. I can imagine in her mind, I left and he came back and got me. He must really care something about me. And somebody in here thinks somebody cares about you. But if the wrong situation arises, You'll come to find out that you are just as disposable as this woman is. And this is how disposable was she? He pushes her out the door, leaves her out there all night long. Scripture says it wasn't until the, the dawn of the day that she makes it back to the door. And when he comes out, he sees her lying there in a crumpled heap and says, get on the donkey, it's time for us to go. Told you it's a a cruel, it's a convoluted, it's an ugly story. And that ain't all. Once she gets on, he has to help her on the donkey. And then when he gets her home, scripture doesn't say what went through his mind, why he decided to do what he was going to do. But once he gets her home, he takes a knife and he dismembers her. He cuts her into 12 pieces. And then he takes the 12 pieces and he distributes her mutilated body to the various tribes of Israel with the intention don't miss this with the intention of using what he perceives as an insult to him as a means to rally the tribes toward revenge. Look at what he says. He says. Has such a thing as this ever happened? From the time the Israelites came up from the land of Egypt. Until now. Think about it. Talk it over. Do something. Well. Mr. Levite. What, what exactly. Are you talking about. What, what insult happened to you. As far as I can see, you're fine. But you count what happened to this woman as an insult to you. And you are so agreed, she is now so repugnant to you that after you made two trips to get her, you cut her up into pieces. All them other folk done had her. I don't want her now. That's the thinking. That has to be going on. You're saying, well, the scripture doesn't say that. Put yourself in that place. And ask yourself, what could have led him to make the decision that he made other than the fact that she's been had by all these other folk? I don't want her anymore. And I'm so aggrieved. Then I'm going to kill her. Go back a couple of weeks. Remember when we were talking about Samson? And Samson made a bet, and he he lost the bet. Granted, the Philistines connived to find out the answer to the riddle, but when he lost the bet and he owed them 30 pieces of clothing, he decided to settle the bet by killing 30 folks. Stripping them of their clothing, and then bringing the clothes back to the people. Here, you in the bed. Take these bloody nasty clothes. And in this case, this Levite decides that he's so hurt, he's so insulted, he's so humiliated that he's going to dismember this girl and send the pieces of her body. Across the tribes of Israel in order for them to come to his defense and fight against the Benjaminites. Story keeps going. Then all the people of Israel came out. The congregation met in the presence of God at Mizpah. They were all there from Dan to Beersheba as one person. The leaders of all the people representing all the tribes of Israel took their places in the gathering of God's people. There were 400 divisions of sword-wielding infantry. Meanwhile, the Benjaminites got wind that the Israelites were meeting at Mizpah. The people of Israel said, now tell us, how did this outrageous evil happen? The Levite, the husband of the murdered woman, spoke. The husband of the murdered woman, the murderer of the girl. The husband of the murdered woman spoke. My concubine and I came to spend the night at Gibeah, Benjaminite town. That night, the men of Gibeah came after me. They surrounded the house, intending to kill me. They gang raped my concubine, and she died. So I took my concubine, cut up her body, and sent her piece by piece, 12 pieces, to every part of Israel's inheritance. This vile and outrageous crime was committed in Israel. So, Israelites, make up your minds, decide on some action. All the people were at once, as one person, on their feet. None of us will go home, not a single one of us will go. To his own house. Here's our plan for dealing with Gibeah. We'll march against it by drawing lots. We'll take 10 of every 100 men from all the tribes of Israel, 100 of every 1,000, 1,000 of every 10,000 to carry food for the army. When the troops arrive at Gibeah, they will settle accounts for this outrageous and vile evil that was done in Israel. So all the men in Israel were gathered against the city, totally united. The Israelite tribe sent messengers throughout the tribe of Benjamin saying, what's the meaning of this outrage that took place among you? Surrender the man right here and now. These hell raises of Gibeah we will put them to death and burn the evil out of Israel. But they wouldn't do it. The Benjaminites refused to listen to their brothers, the people of Israel. Instead, they raised an army from all their cities and rallied at Gibeah to go to war against the people of Israel. In no time at all, they had recruited from their cities 26 divisions of sword-wielding infantry. From Gibeah, they got 700 hand-picked fighters, the best. There were another 700 super marksmen who were ambidextrous. They could sling a stone at a hare and not miss. The men of Israel, excluding Benjamin, mobilized 400 divisions of sword-wielding, fighting men to avenge the wrong. The various tribes decided that they would come together and come against Benjamin, and they would prevail upon Benjamin to send out the people who were specifically responsible for this gang rape that took place. That was their first attempt, but it was rejected. The Benjaminites said, we're not going to do anything like that. And they decided that they were going to resist the other tribes. So what happens next? I'm running out of time, so I'm not going to read the text. Y'all can read it as you go. What happens next is that over the next two days of battle, the, the, the tribes of Israel come against Benjamin and they are pushed back both times. They were not successful at all. Understand, they had, inquired about, they had inquired of God about the battle. The first time they asked which tribe should lead. And God says Judah. They go out there. The people of Judah lead the fight. The Benjaminites resist and prevail and kill thousands. They come back. They weep. They cry. They offer sacrifices. And they inquire of God. Should we go back out there tomorrow or should we just quit and go home? God says go back out there tomorrow. They go back out there the second day. Thousands more are killed. The Benjaminites win both days. That's through verse 25. On the third day, something is different. And I said I wasn't going to read, but I'm going to read. <laughs> Starting with verse 26. All the people of Israel, the whole army, were back at Bethel, weeping, sitting there in the presence of God. That day they fasted until evening. They sacrificed whole burnt offerings and peace offerings before God, and they again inquired of God. The chest of God's covenant, what we commonly call the Ark of the Covenant, the chest of God's covenant was there at that time with Phineas, son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, as the ministering priest. They asked, shall we again march into battle against the Benjaminites, our brothers, or should we call it quits? And God said, attack, tomorrow I'll give you the victory. On the third day, after worshiping in the presence of the Ark of the Covenant, the Israelites shift strategy in such a way that permits them to gain the upper hand against the Benjaminites. They routed the armies. And they killed thousands of Benjaminites. The writer makes a distinction between God's response to Israel on days one and two. And his response to Israel on day three. On day one, they inquired, who should go up? And God said, Judah goes first. On day two, they said, do we go back again? And God says, go back again. But on day three... After worshiping before the Ark of the Covenant, God says, tomorrow, I'm going to give you the victory. I don't think it's by accident that the writer puts it that way. He does not say anything about how the Ark got there. That detail is left out. But apparently the difference between what happens on day three and what happened on days one and two is that the Ark of the Covenant was brought before them. Now, that's chapter 20. They rout the armies. 400 of them run away and hide. They go and find the 400, and they rout them too. But what happens in chapter 21? After the victory, the prevailing Israelites devise a plan To prevent Benjamin from becoming an extinct tribe. When a census was taken of, of which villages and towns had participated in the slaughter of Benjamin, it was determined that no one from Jabesh Gilead had responded to the call to fight. Chapter 21, verse 1. Back at Mizpah, the men of Israel had taken an oath. No man among us will give his daughter to a Benjaminite in marriage. Now, back in Bethel, the people sat in the presence of God until evening. They cried loudly. There was widespread lamentation. They said, why, O God, God of Israel, has this happened? Why do we find ourselves today missing one whole tribe from Israel? I got a good idea why. Y'all killed them all. Early the next morning, the people got busy and built an altar. They sacrificed whole burnt offerings and peace offerings. Then the Israelites said, who from all the tribes of Israel didn't show up as we gathered in the presence of God? For they had all taken a sacred oath that anyone who had not gathered in the presence of God at Mizpah had to be put to death. But the people of Israel were feeling sorry for Benjamin, their brothers. They said, today one tribe is cut off from Israel. How can we get wives for those who are left? We have sworn by God not to give any of our daughters to them in marriage. They said, which one of the tribes of Israel didn't gather before God at missed? But it turned out that no one had come to the gathering from Jabesh Gilead. When they took a roll call of the people, not a single person from Jabesh Gilead was there. So the congregation... Send 12 divisions of their top men there with the command, kill everyone of Jabesh Gilead, including women and children. These are your instructions. Every man and woman who has had sexual intercourse, you must kill. But keep the virgins alive. And that's what they did. They found 400 versions among those who lived in Jabesh Gilead. They had never had sexual intercourse with a man, and they brought them to the camp at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. You see that? So, after they won the victory, they began to devise a plan to prevent Benjamin from becoming. A, an extinct tribe. They decide that since no one came from jabez Gilead, we have the right to kill all of the men there. And if we're going to kill the men, we're going to also kill their wives, and we're also going to kill their children. But we're going to use the virgins to repopulate the tribe of Benjamin. That's verses 1 through 15 of chapter 21. Then in the remainder of the chapter, verses 16 through 24, they realize that the 400 virgins were not enough. And so a second plan is devised involving kidnapping women from Shiloh and making them the wives of the Benjaminites That remained in order to repopulate the tribe. That's verses 16 through 24. And then the story ends as it began. At that time, there was no king in Israel. People did whatever they felt like doing. It's an ugly story. It's a brutal story. Is there anything we can learn from this story? I got 18 minutes left. Is there anything we can learn from this story? I got six points I want to make to you. Okay? Y'all been unusually quiet today. (laughs) I take it y'all ain't never read this story before. Point number one. There is a clear intent by the writer to justify Israel's need for a king to bring moral order to God's people. Between chapters 17 and 21, no less than five times, does the writer say this happened at a time when there was no king. And usually behind that, it says, the people did whatever they wanted. It is clear that the intention is to show and to justify Israel's need for a king to bring moral order to God's people. It is not by accident that the final two stories in Judges involve corrupt Levites. If you remember last week... We dealt with a Levite whose name we come to find at the very end of the story uh, is Jonathan. And uh, he is corrupt. And in this story, verses 19, chapters 19 through 21, we have another Levite who is corrupt. Levites were those assigned by God through Moses to mediate between the people And God. The writer of Judges includes these stories as justification for a different form of government administration. Remember, this was not written as it happened. It was written with a backward view. It was written clearly at a time when a monarchy had been established in Israel. Because it keeps saying, this happened, what I'm writing happened at a time before there was a king. You wouldn't write about something that happened before there was a king if you weren't in a time when there was a king. And so he writes this to justify the shift in administration that had taken place within Israel. And he equates the the, the calling of a king, the establishment of a monarchy, with a bringing of moral order to Israel. But now in point of fact, if we review the record of the monarchy of Israel and then the divided kingdoms of Israel and Judah, you know what we'll find? They were just as corrupt as this period of time. So what is it that we ought to draw from this? It serves to remind us that morality is individual and not connected to a particular title or a particular genealogy. Morality has more to do with a person's connection with God than it does with a particular office that they hold or their genealogy. It's important for us to know that. You are not moral, more moral, because you live under a different administration. Kings can be corrupt. Presidents. Y'all were just waiting on that one. I I made y'all wait 45 minutes. Presidents can be corrupt. Governors can be corrupt. Mayors can be corrupt. It doesn't matter what office you hold. Levites can be corrupt. Even though they were assigned by God as a tribe of priests... The last two stories make it very clear. They were corrupt. Why is it that the people come to Samuel in 1 Samuel and say, we're tired of judges? Because Samuel's two sons who had succeeded him as judge were corrupt. We don't want your boys ruling over us anymore. We want a king like other nations. We want a king that we can see. Corruption is not limited to a particular office. Corruption can be found in any office and under any genealogy. Cuz Big Mama went to church, doesn't necessarily mean that you know the Lord. Because Grandma sang hymns while she cooked. Doesn't mean that you have a relationship with the Lord. Morality has to do with our individual walk, not an office that we hold or our genealogy. Point number two, another implication of the text has to do with the economic strain that the other tribes experienced because of the Levites. What's the commonality between Levite number one and Levite number two. They're both poor and they're both traveling, trying to find a place and a way to make it. We always talk about the 12 tribes of Israel. But in point of fact, there were not 12 tribes of Israel. There were 13. 12 tribes inherited land the 13th tribe was the tribe of Levi and Levites did not inherit land. And the reason why they did not inherit land was because God said that they would be a nation of priests who would intercede on the, on behalf of the people before me. And they would speak for me to the people. And in response to the reality that they would not inherit land. It became the responsibility of all the other tribes to take care of the needs of the Levites. They weren't supposed to go without. They weren't supposed to be in want. They didn't own any land, which means that they didn't have any crops. At that time, it was land, crops, livestock that determined wealth. They didn't have any land. They didn't have any crops. They didn't have any livestock. How were they supposed to make it? The other 12 tribes were responsible for taking care of them. That's an economic strain on folk. Let me ask y'all a question to make this relevant to y'all. I got 11 minutes. I'm looking at the clock because I'm going to eat in a minute. If you had a child who left home at 21 24, whatever whatever time y'all say, thank you, Jesus, they gone. And for five years you have built your economy around the fact that there is no child at home. And then one morning you hear a knock at the door, and you open the door, and the child is there with their spouse with your grandchild with a u-haul truck in the driveway and they say we moving back in how'd you feel about that and 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 don't give the peck oh that's my baby anything no think about it this is the kind of economic strain that these other tribes were asked to assume We have to share our wealth with this group of people. We have to share our crops with this group of people. We have to share our livestock. Somebody in my house has to do without so that I can take care of these people. Now, here's the thing. When God first said it, everybody said, yeah, that's fine. Great. Ain't got no problem. God will do that. But you know what happens after a while, right? You ever had a guest come in your house and say, I'm only going to be here for two days. And two months later. They still in your house. It's an economic strain. And the economic strain of this entire Situation led to the Levites becoming an underclass within Judaism. And the whole perception of them changed. They went from being an honored and respected and appreciated group of people to being a problem that had to be dealt with. Remember this. Whenever economy is involved, whenever money (coughs) is involved, there is opportunity for exploitation and abuse. Point number three. There is a complete disparagement of women in this text. And if you look at all of it, throughout all of Judges. There is a complete disparagement of women. The commoditization of women should not be overlooked, minimized, or ignored because the attitude still exists even today. What do I mean by the commoditization? I mean people who look at women as something to be exchanged and not someone to be respected. And it ain't just limited to women. People look at other folk from a different racial background as a commodity. And not a person. You know how I know? Because this nation said that you and I were three-fifths of a person. You weren't a, you weren't a full person in American society. You, you were not a full person. What's going on right now at the Mexican border is an indication of the commoditization of people. I am endlessly fascinated, got six minutes, I am endlessly fascinated at the fact that we keep wanting to build walls at the southern border. Don't say nothing about the northern border. Don't say nothing about keeping folks from flying in from Europe or from China. But we want to keep out brown folk at the southern border. The commoditization of people, I like saying the word commoditization, because I want you to think, that's what, that's what they do to you. You are not a person. You're a commodity. They can trade on. And remember what we found out earlier. Once your value is gone, they don't care what happens to you. Point number four. God leads us into places where we experience humiliating defeat. According to the text, they inquired of God on days one and two about going into battle. And on days one and two, God said, go. Question number one, to be specific, which tribe should lead? God said, Judah. Question number two, should we go back the next day? Or should we call it quits? God said, go. Both times, they experienced humiliating defeat. God will sometimes lead us into places where we experience humiliating defeat. But if we are persistent in our devotion to him, he will ultimately bring us to victory. Before they went out on day three, they said, should we keep on going? And he said, tomorrow I will bring you victory. Don't let today's defeat cause you to stop what you're doing. Don't let today's humiliation be the last chapter that is written of your story. Just like God brought you into a storm. If you stay with him, he'll bring you out. Two more things and I'm gone. Number five, the permissive will of God, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago when we were dealing with Samson. The permissive will of God on display in this text should not be taken as God sanctioning rape, mutilation, misogyny, kidnapping, or any of the other terrible things that take place. There is no way to justify these things, though we must not ignore that they happened. I told you all when we talked about this last time, nobody has a problem with the original will of God, nobody has a problem with the ultimate will of God, it's the permissive will of God where we have problems. Because in God's permissive will, He allows things to happen. He does not sanction, he allows. And there's a difference between allowing and sanctioning because they happen because of our own free moral agency. And you can't claim free moral agency when it's good to you and then advocate from it when the outcome is less than you want it to be. Finally, number six. The escalation of these events recorded in these chapters Show how far out of hand things can become when our lives are not built on a spiritual platform. You take Judges 19, 20, and 21, and everything that happened started with a Levite decided, I want that woman to be my concubine. Everything else that transpires starts with that. And from that simple choice, everything blew out of proportion. It blew up to a place where there was rape, and there was murder, and there was dismemberment, and there was war, and there was misogyny, and there was kidnapping, all from one event, one decision. And I bring this to your mind because y'all think that your little decisions don't matter. You don't know what's going to grow from the choices you make. You don't know how that choice is going to end up. Y'all think that all these things are disjointed, that one has nothing to do with the other. But if you read the three chapters, it all stretches from one thing. And it stems from the fact that there was no spiritual platform. Jesus says, I got to go. Jesus says that a person who hears my words and does not heed them is like a fellow who builds his house on sand. Looks good on top. But when trouble comes, it falls apart because you didn't start on the right foundation. It's a new year. Are you looking for a church home, a church that will be welcoming to you and to your family, to your children, a church that is interested in meeting the needs of people? I'm Fred Jeff Smith, pastor of Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church, and I'm inviting you to come and share with us. Come check us out. You'll be glad that you did. This is Fred Jeff Smith, pastor of Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church, inviting you to give consideration to our Early Learning Academy as you look for a place for your pre-K, kindergarten, or first grader. We would love to have the opportunity to serve your child. We have outstanding facilities and a wonderful staff of certified teachers itching to serve you. Come by and share with us as soon as you can.